Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. on PA Books, Maxwell King and Louise Lippincott, authors of American Workmen. Maxwell King and Louise Lippincott are the authors of American Workmen, The Life and Art of John Cain. Uh, how did each of you discover John Cain's art? Shall I go first? You go first, um, Max. <laughs> uh, I, I got interested in John Cain about 20 years ago when I was working at the Heinz Endowments here in Pittsburgh, and the endowments has a large collection of Pittsburgh artists, um, all the way back to the early part of the 20th century. And occasionally we would have a consultant uh, or an art dealer come in and talk to us about what was in the collection, what, what should we be thinking of adding or deaccessioning. And a guy named Pat McCardle, who's an art dealer here in Pittsburgh, uh, came in and he said to me, I can't believe you guys don't have a cane. And I said, what? What's that? And he explained to me about John Kane, his importance uh, as an artist, as a self-taught artist, but also as a leading Pittsburgh artist. And so I started doing research and, and reading and actually got started on thinking about doing a book then, but then a bunch of other things, uh, including writing the biography of Fred Rogers, intruded. Uh, then when the pandemic hit, I thought I need something to keep me busy at home, so I went back to work on it. And it wasn't long into it before I realized that I could write the biography, but I had no ability to write the art criticism or the art history that would explain uh, Kane's work in a really cogent way. And uh, in the single sharpest move I made in the whole process, uh, I remembered Lulu Lippincott, who I knew from uh, the Carnegie Museum of Art. And we got a cup of coffee at Starbucks. And she agreed that she would take on the, the artistic side or the art side. So I'd do the life. Lulu would do the art. And it, that turned out to be such a good move, not just because her essays are brilliant on Kane's art, but she's also a very dogged researcher and dug up tons of good new stuff on John Kane, which benefited her essay, but also benefited my essay. Louise, when did you first encounter Kane's work? I moved to Pittsburgh about 30 years ago um, to become the curator of fine arts at Carnegie Museum of Art, um, which has the largest collection of John Kane paintings in the country. And I'd never heard of him. Um, and it was made very clear to me that I had better find out quickly. So, you know, I read the basic books, studied the collection. I figured of all the artists in the Carnegie's collection, he was one of the best documented and best known and wasn't going to be a big challenge for me as a curator. Um, but I lived with the art for th almost 30 years. I got to know it very well. And um, for me, the test of a really great work of art is that after 20 years, I'm still not bored with it. And um, 
With John Cain, I actually ended up getting more and more interested. Um, and by the time I retired from the Carnegie, um, he was the project I still wanted to do. Um, I didn't think there'd be a whole big market for it, but I thought that he would be worth the trouble and that he would be highly relevant to life today. So Max called me out of the blue and said, how about, how about John Cain? And, and I just said yes. <laughs> I mean, it was just waiting to happen for me. Louise, what do, you, what do you think is distinctive about his work? What was it that makes it so interesting to you? Well, part of it was the fact that it looks simple and isn't. Um, the more I looked at it, the more I appreciated how well John Cain designed his compositions, and the more I realized that all the details in these pictures, and there are thousands of them, mean something. Um, as a relative newbie to Pittsburgh, I didn't know what all those places and people were, but I knew that they were significant and part of a story that I was really wanting to understand. Um, and so I came to appreciate John Cain as a really, as an excellent designer and as a really good storyteller. Um, and I found myself wanting to know more about the stories, which is why when Max invited me to participate in the book, um, it was an excuse to really get into all those stories. How, how is his work viewed in, in the art world today? Ah, um, for any artist who's been around for more than 100 years, um, there's a, it's an up and down story. Um, he was a national celebrity in the 1930s, right into the 40s and 50s. Um, he went into a partial eclipse, I guess you could say, in the art market um, with the rise of pop art. In Pittsburgh, Andy Warhol took over the role of most famous Pittsburgh artist. Um, but he's, Kane is coming back um, lately in the field of museums and art history. Uh, there's a rising interest in artists who were not part of the, the mainstream, so to speak, who did not go to art school, who were not, um, did not travel abroad to study, um, were not hooked into the commercial art world early. And there's new interest in these artists across the country, and um, more and more exhibitions, projects, and books are coming out. Kane, as the first artist of this kind to receive national recognition, is always part of the story. It's interesting to me, by the way, that uh, Kane's pictures sold when he was alive, although not for a great deal of money. And then for a long time, there wasn't much of a market for Keynes. And now again, <laughs> not sure why. Maybe it's you, Lulu. No, it's nothing. They're nothing. selling, uh, I think I read about <laughs> two, one at 150,000, one at 175,000. So uh, an awareness of Keynes has been building even before uh, we did the book or the, the Pittsburgh History Center did the exhibit. Mm -hmm. well, let's talk a little bit about uh, John Keynes' life. Maxwell, where, where did he grow up? Well, he was born in Scotland, and he lived there until he was uh, 20 years old. And he was happy there. He had a good job that made quite a good salary, and uh, he loved Scotland. 
But his father died, his mother remarried, and, and her new husband, John's stepfather, was determined to move the whole family to America. And John declined to participate in that at first, but eventually his mother, who he adored, uh, wore him down. And when he was 20 years old, he came to Pittsburgh, which uh, his stepfather had learned was the promised land, where, where there were lots of jobs and they paid a great deal. Uh, John, of course, found right away that he wasn't making as much as he did in Scotland. But um, he came here and he, and he led this uh, picaresque journey of a life, uh, traveling all around, doing all sorts of different jobs. He, he worked in the steel mills for Andrew Carnegie. He worked in the coal mines for uh, Henry Clay Frick. He worked as a street paver, as a carpenter, as a painter, as a commercial painter, a house painter. Uh, all sorts of different jobs, all the while uh, taking time every day. I mean, he'd work for 10 or 12 hours a day and then take time to, to make drawings and, and gradually develop uh, his uh, own artistic capability. When did he first start to draw? He first started to draw, the record we have shows that he first started to draw when he was in, in school at 10 years old. He probably was drawing way before that when he was at home. But he tells a story of uh, drawing a picture of uh, French and Prussian soldiers in his classroom <laughs> and getting caught by the teacher, who gives him a, a good uh, several smacks on the hand with a ruler for having done that. And then Cain always drew after that. I think there were periods of time when he was, when he was more focused on work and making a living and less focused on his art. And then there were other times when he really, really spent a lot of time drawing. Louisa, did he have formal artistic training? No, he didn't. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, he, he kind of trained himself uh, and he took the, his artistic process is tied to the kinds of jobs he did as a laborer in Pittsburgh. So he drew instinctively from childhood. Um, but he did a lot of drawing while he was paving streets in the city in um, the 1890s. And if you think about a Pittsburgh city street in the 1890s, it's all gray um, or black or dark or filthy dirty. And you're dealing with the lines in the street. You're dealing with the sidewalks, the curbs, the crossings, uh, the streetcar tracks. So it's a, it's a there's a lot of lines in this space, and it's all gray. And then his job was to lay the blocks in between all of the lines, you know, to, and to make them fit in those bumpy Belgian block streets we all love. Um, and he started drawing then, I think, as an effort to uh, minimize the amount of labor he would have to expend to pave that street. Um, I got to pick up one of those Belgian blocks the other day. It weighs about 40 pounds. And if you're doing lifting 40-pound blocks all from 8 to 12 hours a day, you want to be very efficient. And he started drawing as part of that process. And as a result, his painting, this is, I think, is why his paintings are so beautifully designed, um, because every line is thought out and how he's going to fill each line and space is thought out. And I think it's also the reason why so many of his pictures 
especially the landscapes, are about moving through the landscape, whether it's on a boat or a train or a streetcar and later in his career, automobiles. Um, so drawing was, seems to be allied to street paving. He actually said so in his, um, you know, in his story in Skyhooks. Um, and then painting developed out of his um, job painting boxcars for the pressed steel car company in about 1902, 1903, 1904. Um, and that was, you know, painting the base coat, the top coat, adding the logos. Um, so he learned how to mix paint, mix colors, to do the fine work that you need to write B&O Railroad on the boxcar. Um, and he got to be very good at it, and he really enjoyed it. Um, and during his time off, he would take some of the extra paint and his brushes and paint portraits of his coworkers or uh, sort of off-the-cuff landscape on the boxcar. And, um, and then the supervisor would make him paint it over after lunch. <laughs> but that was when he learned oil painting technique. You put that technique together with the paving um, design process, you have a John Kane landscape. Maxwell, given where he grew up and the time he grew up in, was, was there a pathway for a career in art for somebody like John Kane? I think from the things that I've read that his mother uh, understood his, his artistic talent and uh, was intent on trying to help him find uh, a way to um, focus on art. Uh, I don't know if it could possibly have led to a career or not. His education ended uh, when he was pretty young, I think 11 years old. Uh, but he came from a working family, and uh, his father and stepfather and everybody else in his family, his brothers, his cousins, uh, were all working uh, people. And so John, at a very young age, again about 11, uh, went to work uh, as a pusher in one of the shale mines uh, in, in West Calder, Scotland, where he grew up. And so. Uh, it'd be, it's really interesting to think about uh, what impact there would have been on John Kane as an artist if from a very early age he had concentrated on art, he'd been able to make a living at that, he'd gotten schooling, and he'd be a very different painter probably, and he might be better or he might not. In a lot <laughs> of ways, I think, and I think Lulu agrees with me, that um, John Kane was very lucky to be taught by John Kane, that he, he evolved this very distinctive approach. Uh, you know, when you see a Kane, you're not going to mistake it uh, for almost any other artist, at least that I know. And I think that's because he, over decades of hard work, patiently evolved his art rather than learning in a classical way and reflecting the traditions and the practices of the time. I'll, if I may jump in here, um, the, if he had been able to stay in school into his teenage years, um, I think his skill would have manifested itself to teachers and he would have been able to enter some kind of formal training as a, in his late teenage years, um, either as a commercial artist or as a fine artist. Um, there are lots of stories um, of American um, artists whose, whose beginnings are as humble as Kane's, 
um, but who managed to get um, find work as um, commercial illustrators, engravers, low-level stuff, but enough to get them into the field, expose them to um, more sophisticated art, get them into an art school, and onto a professional track. There was a way for a working class, talented working class um, individual to make it into the mainstream art world, um, but it required staying in school through early high school. And for Kane, that was not possible. He was 20 years old in 1880, and so the period of his life was a really creative period in the art world. Was he aware of movements like mm -hmm. Cubism and Oppressionism and some of the other movements that were going on? <laughs> I, I know he was, he all his life was going to the library and getting art books and, and reading as much as he could. But what his awareness was, Lulu, you probably would have a better idea than uh, that. If I had to characterize his own art, I would call him a late Victorian, in that an awful lot of this whole idea of a moral storytelling landscape painting is something that was incredibly popular in the late 19th century, especially in Britain, where he got started and where he started looking at pictures, um, it's his ideas of what constituted great art and eh, boring art originated, which he pretty much stuck close to. Um, once he entered modern art circles in the late 1920s, he got a crash course, both from the work he was seeing in exhibitions here in Pittsburgh at the Carnegie International. Um, he was a, um, a big fan of Carnegie Library, and he checked out and studied art books. And he had every critic and newspaper reporter in the country asking him if he thought he was a modern artist. And what did he think of modern art? So he, w he had a crash course late in his life. Now, you, we talked about him growing up in, in Scotland. Uh, how does Scotland appear in his paintings? It's there all the time in that um, his pictures are, oh, even when they represent Pittsburgh in southwestern Pennsylvania, um, there are echoes of his Scottish childhood, his Scottish memories. Scottish stories, Scottish scenes, Scottish music and poetry. Um, so, so it's always there. Uh, his daughter believed that one of the reasons he painted Pittsburgh looking so green and beautiful all the time is that he was actually remembering um, hills in Scotland and sort of turning Pittsburgh into his ideal place as opposed to the real place it was. He was not, these landscapes are not realistic and not intended to be. Um, but the music and the poetry came over with him, stayed with him, um, and informs many of his paintings. Maxwell, you talk about his life as, as being somebody who's traveling around constantly. What, what kind of a life was he living? Uh, a very nomadic life a lot of times. He went down to Tennessee, West Virginia, uh, Ohio, uh, other parts of Pennsylvania. And he always seemed to be very ready to move on, either geographically or uh, in terms of, of a, a new job, a new profession. And I think that probably relates to his alcoholism. He, he uh, was a heavy drinker all his life. He tried a number of times to stop with some success, but uh, really for his whole life he was a heavy drinker. And I think his leaving his family for long periods of time, which he did, and his constantly 
moving forward in, into uh, different uh, professions, different locales, uh, kind of reflects that uh, uh, alcoholic temperament uh, that he had. But you know, the thing that's so interesting to me about John Cain is that despite uh, this very peripatetic life that he created, he was absolutely focused and dedicated and hardworking about every job, about working in the coal mine, about street paving, as Lulu just described, mm. and about his art. So what's remarkable to me is that through, through all of his struggles and all of, his, all of the changes that took place in his life, John was always able to focus on the jobs he was doing and then focus on his art and relentlessly setting high standards for himself and, and doing his best to meet those standards. It's really an interesting, you know, Pittsburgh has a reputation as a working man's city and has a reputation as a place where people really work hard and focus on their work. And to that extent, John Cain is kind of emblematic, I think, of Pittsburgh's history. And, and riffing off uh, of what Max said, um, if you follow Cain's sequence of jobs, it, it's the economic history of the United States. Um, coal mining, from coal mining to steel making to railroad building to the automobile industry to suburban development. I mean, if you, it, it follows really some of the main economic trends in, in, in U.S. history at the time, especially the ones that were Pittsburgh-centric. Um, and his lifestyle in all of these places and all of these jobs was miserable. Um, he never he he never really lived in. He never was able to own a property and live in it. He went from boarding house to tenement to boarding house to the Salvation Army. Um, you know, so he, he lived in one room. Um, he got around on one leg um, using public transportation. Um, it was not an easy life. You mentioned that he got around on one leg. Can you tell the story of uh, how he lost his leg? He was out late one night with a cousin and his brother, actually looking for another brother, if I recall properly. And they were on the tracks near the Edgar Thompson Steelworks in Braddock. And they were talking and laughing as they walked home down the, the tracks, which from many, the bar. <laughs> many, many working people used the tracks as a as a highway back then. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were talking loudly enough that they didn't hear the uh, engine of a train coming up behind them, a, a yard switcher. And it didn't have a light on it, which by law, even then, it was required to have, but it didn't. And it came up upon them suddenly, and John pushed uh, his uh, cousin out of the way so that he wouldn't be hurt, but then slipped and his leg, his left leg, uh, went on the track and was run over by the train and he lost his left leg. But uh, he managed to get a prosthesis. He got some help mm. from somewhere to get a prosthesis and then worked and tailored it himself to, to fit his needs as a workman and went on to a, a wide variety of other jobs, including uh, boxing matches, which he had done before he lost the leg and continued. So it was kind of, again, a remarkable example of a really dedicated, intentional, focused guy. Now, you mentioned his boxing. Was he making money as a boxer? 
No. <laughs> he won one fight in um, Fayette County, I think it was, where there was a there was a prize associated with it. But mostly, he started out as a barroom brawler, yeah. and then he had fights with a, a number of people that were actual matches. But I don't think, except for that one occasion, he earned any money as a boxer. Prize fighting was illegal at the time, so it, this was definitely an after-hours um, <laughs> occupation. Um, but he, he really enjoyed it. Um, yes, at he, one point, he had a boxing studio in the attic of the family house where his friends would come and box with him. Um, it's also where he kept his painting supplies. And uh, you write that he also fought uh, Gentleman Jim Corbett? Right. He, when, when he and a friend of his were down in Tennessee working in a coal mine down there, uh, there was a local bar owner who was a great fan of boxing and sort of took a liking to John Kane and, and saw that he got sparring partners, got opportunities to get in the ring and, and fight. And Gentleman Jim Corbett, this is probably eight or ten years before he became uh, the heavyweight champion of the world. Uh, was traveling around trying to build a name for himself. So he was doing exhibition matches. And uh, the bartender set up John Kane with Corbett for an exhibition match. It only lasted three rounds, and it was declared a draw by both sides. And I kind of wonder if maybe Corbett decided to stop after three rounds, because he was getting pasted a little bit. Now, one of the one of his paintings that that's uh, in the book is uh, it's a self-portrait of him playing a flute, uh, titled uh, "The Girl I Left Behind Me." Well, what's the significance of the flute? Um, when he when he emigrated to the United States, he carried a small tin box that contained all of his earthly possessions, including a tin whistle, and so it was one of his most concrete ties to his Scottish heritage. Um, and he owned a variety of them through, through over the years. Um, he pulled them out and played Scottish uh, folk songs on them when he was either very happy or very sad. Um, and so for him, the act of playing music is an act of memory of Scotland. Um, the self-portrait of him playing the tin whistle is um, has, has layers. He is, um, he painted it in the 1920s, but he's remembering, um, he is depicting himself as a young man, age 20, leaving Scotland, um, playing this song, The Girl I Left Behind Me, which is a, was a popular folk song in England, Scotland, and the United States. In the United States, it was a um, Civil War tune. Um, in Scotland and Ireland, it was often, um, played and sung by soldiers or workers leaving home for the first time to seek adventure, jobs, um, and so forth. So it's, it is a song that is associated with leaving home. And, um, and that was, it was one of his favorite songs. Uh, he amended it later in life to uh, The Girl I Left Behind is the One Who Had All the Luck, um, which I think indicates his regret about leaving Scotland um, mm. as, a as a young man. Who was Maggie Halloran? Well, she, she became his wife. Uh, he met her when, when she was very young uh, in Pittsburgh, or in Braddock, I guess it was. Uh, 
Mm -hmm. uh, I think met her through his sister. And uh, oddly enough, her parents had lived right almost next door to Kane's parents in West Calder, Scotland. But her family, too, had immigrated to Pittsburgh, which, of course, back then had a great reputation as a place with a lot of work and an opportunity. Um, they got married. Uh, they lived together for a long time. He was uh, separate. He left for long periods of time. Uh, I think Maggie had to struggle uh, to try to keep the relationship on on any kind of even ground with with John. Uh, she she had to go to court uh, to to get him uh, put into a facility for alcoholism and tuberculosis. Uh, she had to go to uh, court to uh, uh, get him thrown out of the house after, according to Maggie, he tried to set fire to the house. This is all of this brawling, drunken behavior <laughs> that uh, I'm sorry to say John was given to throughout his life. But uh, they'd been apart for about 20 years when Cain finally uh, uh, and suddenly became very, very famous in 1927, when his work was accepted at the Carnegie International. And uh, soon thereafter, Maggie, who was living in Washington, came back. And I think she was, uh, she, she was there, in part, to cash in on John's reputation. But I think she was hugely helpful to him in the last seven years of his life, uh, when he was trying to spend all his time, or most of his time, uh, painting. Uh, and I, I think she helped him do that and, and helped him in a variety of other ways. So when, uh, when he was doing his travels, was she traveling with him or did she, no. or did he leave? No, he left his family. He left his family when he was do doing that traveling. Yeah. She, two daughters, a, a wife and two daughters. What did and they think sometimes, of him? Sometimes he would uh, send some money back, but not always. What did they think of his art? They had no clue. Um, his wife um, made it very clear um, to everyone that she never, had never seen him at work on a painting, that she did not know how to handle his paintings, um, and that the painting was, was his thing completely separate from her part in their life. Um, and this was... This was certainly true, because um, after his death, there were a great many difficulties um, with figuring out what to do with his art um, once it was hers, in her custody, rather than his. Um, so that was complicated. The daughters, um, the daughters had, grew up with um, really good memories of Cain coming back home from one of these lengthy absences. And as a special treat for them and the neighborhood kids, he would, he would go out into the coal shed or the backyard or whatever and paint, and paint the fences and the walls with cows, dancing children, um, pretty landscapes, um, which the kids in the neighborhood all loved and remembered. So she thought of his art more as um, entertainment um, than as a way to make a living or as a great technical achievement. It was simply something her dad did that was really cool. Um, she had a, his daughter Margaret, who became executor of the state, had a better understand, slightly better understanding um, 
of the art market and the situation um, than did Kane's wife, Maggie. Um, but it was a very complicated time for all of them to, that was when they finally had to come to grips with what this art was all about. How important was his uh, Catholicism to his artwork? Very important. Um, he studied Catholic art carefully um, all his life. I mean, it's something that he would have seen from childhood on. And he collected Catholic images and postcards and illustrated books. And he considered um, great Renaissance art, which is mostly Catholic, to be the greatest art of all time. Um, so figures of saints, figures from the Bible, stories from the Bible were for him the greatest works of art possible. Um, he was terrible at it, um, but he did try hard, and he did not give up until um, uh, the modern art crowd convinced him that his landscapes were a better way to go. Um, but even the landscapes have a sort of Catholic moral to their story. And so he, there's a very religious sensibility in all of his art that's expressed both in the, in the Catholic iconography of his figure paintings and then in these moral landscapes where um, the sun, the light, the clouds um, tell, you, um, tell you the story and, and provide the moral insight he's trying to convey. His mother was a devout Catholic, and, uh, and John, who adored his mother, uh, paid a lot of attention to that. And as he came to Pittsburgh and traveled around, I think he held on to two things very strongly for a connection uh, to his origins. One was the memories of Scotland, and the other was his Catholic faith. And of course, his mother was here too, so he was able to, to be with her a great deal of the time. And those things sort of tied him back to his uh, beginnings as a person. Yeah. The, the family also depended on Catholic charities, Catholic schools, Catholic um, services to um, structure their life and to um, provide them with. This Catholic church was their social and economic safety net um, until the 1920s. Um, th that was where they went for um, the good things in life. One of the paintings that, that you have in the book is the, the portrait of Bishop Boyle. Uh, who was Bishop Boyle? What did he think of the painting? Yours, Max. <laughs> uh, bishop Boyle uh, was a bishop in Pittsburgh who, uh, whose church was near where John Cain was living in the Strip District when he had a, a small uh, flat there to, as a place to live and a place to paint. Uh, and uh, my recollection is that John gave the portrait to Bishop Boyle, and that Bishop Boyle didn't like it at all. He also painted uh, Father Cox. Uh, of, uh, the, uh, Father Cox was a Pittsburgh uh, priest who was very famous as a champion of the poor and, and led marches on Washington. I think he actually ran for president in 1928. Uh, the, but the, unfortunately, the picture of Father Cox which to me would have been even more interesting, uh, didn't survive. Now, Louise, you have a family connection uh, to the publishing <laughs> of a book about him. Uh, tell, tell us about that. All right. Um, well, as when Kane became famous, a Pittsburgh journalist named Mary McSwiggan um, 
got interested in writing um, a book about him. Uh, Mrs. Kane actually invited her to participate and set up a series of interviews between John Kane and Mary McSwiggan that became the basis for the book called Skyhooks, which is still the primary source for anyone who's interested in knowing about Kane's art and life. Um, it was a controversial project um, at the time, and it took her several years to find a publisher, um, which turned out to be um, my grandfather, who was the editor of Skyhooks. Um, I stumbled across their correspondence um, in the archives at Carnegie Library, and, <laughs> and uh, ruffling through her letters and papers, there was a letter to her from my grandfather telling her what she needed to do if this book was going to be published. <coughs> and I'm going, go, Grandpa. Um, so, so yeah, there's the connection. It, I didn't know about it. Um, I was very proud of my grandfather for seeing the project through and for producing such an important book. Um, and I was kind of shocking to sort of see the circle, see things come full circle again. How did, how did the art world discover him? Uh, I'll start Your story. and then you can take it from there. <laughs> Your story. Um, in addition to being focused and hardworking, John Cain was really intrepid. There's nothing he wouldn't try. There was no, he, he was a risk taker. Uh, and he, in 1925, uh, he got, uh, I think, three of his paintings, if I remember correctly, about that year, and marched in his painter's overalls, his house painter's overalls, up the steps of the Carnegie, Carnegie Museum of Art to offer his paintings for the Carnegie International, uh, which then was held every year. Now it's every four years. And he was turned down, and he came back the next year, and he was turned down, although he got a, a nice letter from the director of the museum encouraging him. The third year, he got very, very lucky. There was a juror named Andrew Dasberg, who himself was an artist and had spent time uh, learning and developing his skills in Paris uh, in the, I think, the late teens, early 1920s. Mm -hmm and had been part of the, uh, the art world that included Pablo Picasso and saw Pablo Picasso's championing of Henri Rousseau, the French self-taught artist who became such an influence on modern art. So Dasberg felt he saw something similar in John Cain, and he worked hard with the other jurors to get Cain's uh, picture accepted in an international, which that sort of triggered the fame, but you should take it from here, Lulu. <laughs> okay. Well, actually, um, Max is giving you the, the official version. Um, the unofficial version, which Carnegie um, Institute worked hard to suppress for many years, um, is that actually Dasberg had a knockdown screaming fight with the rest of the jury and the, the administration of the Carnegie International to persuade them to let this strange artist into the show. Um, he had to buy the painting himself to convince them that he would, quote, put his money where his mouth is, unquote. Um, and they hung it sort of, as it, the term was, behind the door in a very inconspicuous corner of the installation. Um, but of course, the Pittsburgh newspapers jumped on it um, as, a, as, a one, as a sensational um, story about, you know, how this humble and 
unqualified artist suddenly gets into the international. And, um, and it became such a, um, a, a big story nationally um, that the Carnegie was more or less committed to showing him ever, forever after um, in internationals. Um, and the other part of this story um, is that in 1926-27, when, when Kane was submitting, Carnegie International was, was under a lot of pressure to modernize. Um, the Museum of Modern Art had been founded in New York. Um, a lot of the, the cool galleries were based in New York. And all, it, the New Yorkers were very interested in the most advanced kinds of European modernism. And they were looking at the late 19th, early 20th century post-impressionist and realist artists that the Carnegie was featuring in their internationals and saying, this isn't cutting it. Um, the Carnegie has to modernize. Um, however, the taste for really advanced abstract art like Cubism in Pittsburgh was pretty close to zero, um, and the Carnegie was in a rough spot. Um, John Kane kind of rescued them by making them both modern but not modern. Um, modern in the sense that they have an outsider, Henri Rousseau-type artist, um, not modern in that he thinks and paints like a Victorian. Um, and gets the Carnegie International on the front pages of the national press uh, for weeks every year. And of course, that, that discovery of Kane, because of all the notoriety, all the press, uh, Kane, for I guess 20 years after that, was pretty successful. Lots of major wealthy collectors were buying his pictures, museums were taking on his pictures, and, and now, even today, there, there's probably a dozen museums around the country that have canes. Uh, so it, it was kind of a good deal both ways for the Carnegie and for Kane. Mm -hmm. uh, Louise, can you talk about the importance of self-portraits for him? We talked about one of them earlier. There's also one on the cover <laughs> of the book. Right. Um, one, uh, actually, one of the organizers of the Carnegie International um, made this very perceptive comment about him at the time. He said, John Kane only cared for three things, God, landscape, and himself. And his self-portraits um, are—there are many. There are like 12. Um, and he basically— I think as part of the, the interview process um, behind the Skyhooks book, where he was reviewing his entire life story from Mary McS Murray McSwiggan, um, motivated him to do a series of self-portraits that basically he represents himself at every decade in his life, from babyhood right through to um, age 70. And so we get him—the <laughs> baby portrait is hilarious. Um, then we get him as the young man leaving Scotland. We get him as a, um, a worker artist trying to just break even in the, 19, in the teens and 20s. Um, we get him at the moment of his breakthrough into the Carnegie International. And then two extraordinary late self-portraits where he is coming to terms with fame, success, and mortality. And those are, those are killers um, by any <laughs> stretch of the imagination. Um, and so, he uses the self-portraits to explore his inner life, tell the story of his life, and, um, and to advocate for his point of view of life and mortality. 
um, they're, they're very, very powerful and, um, and tricky because, because he used Scottish folk songs and poetry for many of the titles, um, many of these haven't been recognized as self-portraits until, until Max and I really started to dig into, um, into the story and to understand the meanings of the titles and how they fit into his life and his worldview. Um, so the self-portraits, there's one for every decade. Was he surprised at his success? Uh, I think he was, <clears throat> in one sense he was surprised in, in that it was hard to get in to, to the Carnegie. It was hard for him to get in. He had to come back three years. But in another sense, I'm not sure he was surprised because he, he despite all his struggles, he believed in himself so strongly and believed in his ability <laughs> to do excellent and beautiful things. And he also believed in the beauty of his surroundings. Um, one of the critics in New York wrote that he was remarkable in his ability to find beauty in, in the most, in the harshest uh, industrial landscapes. And so I think, I think John was um, always believed he, he was going to uh, get somewhere important as an artist. And, and even though he was, he was surprised and delighted by the Carnegie's acceptance of him, I think he was ready for it. At the, at the time of his, you know, talking to, to Marie McSwiggan, one of his comments stuck with me. He said, I always thought my paintings were good. And in that respect, Max is right. It was not a surprise when he achieved recognition. Uh, what he wasn't prepared for was celebrity yeah, or the contemporary art world, <laughs> which were new experiences for him and um, kind of shattering. Uh, at first, um, after his first breakthrough, he really thought of, of his international fame as a way to advertise his work as a house painter. Um, and he, he thought, you know, that his house painting would promote his, his fine art skills, his fine art reputation would get him more jobs as a house painter, um, not realizing that they are apples and oranges. Um, so celebrity was, was, was a problem for him. Um, the recognition that his art was good, I think he accepted just as a matter of course. Did his success change the, the content of his paintings? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. And Lula should talk about it. Yeah. Change it in such important ways. Yeah. In my mind, for better, but, yeah. but Lulu's yeah. the expert. You can, you can talk to. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, in, ter in terms of, you know, speaking, uh, speaking art historically, um, he learned the hard way that um, fine art collectors, um, the dealers, the galleries, the, you know, high-level, big-bucks guys um, wanted the landscapes. And they wanted landscapes that they thought were appropriate to um, an artist who was a worker um, in background. So they, his new market wanted industrial landscapes. Um, his old market, um, the workers and peers in his life, wanted figure paintings. They wanted portraits of themselves, pictures of their houses and children, um, pictures of famous people and saints. Those he, he submitted those to the early internationals, um, but he gave up after a few years and stuck to landscape. And really, he was so much better at landscapes than he was at any sort of portraiture. 
uh, I, I think <laughs> when, when certain aspects of John's work appear to be a little crude, it's usually in the depiction of people. Did he, was he somebody that people would come over to a studio? Were people seeking him out after he became famous? Uh, his, a lot of people were knocking on his door, interrupting him when he was trying to work. Uh, press, newspaper reporters, magazine reporters, uh, some local collectors. Uh, you mm -hmm. might talk a little bit about Thompson, <laughs> oh boy. who harassed him somewhat, I think. Yeah. And, um, other people in the Pittsburgh art world. So he did feel, uh, as Lulu just said, that celebrity um, was very disruptive in his life and, more importantly than anything to John, uh, got in the way of his doing his work of painting. How important was somebody like Abraham Lincoln to him? <laughs> That's a complicated question um, and, and a good one. He paint Abraham, in a funny way, Abraham Lincoln got him started as a commercial artist. Um, he had worked for, with a sign painter on creating um, views of the Pittsburgh Blockhouse for the Pittsburgh Blockhouse's bicentennial or 150th anniversary. Sesquicentennial. Sesquicentennial. Yeah. Thank you, Max. Um, and so he had learned that you could, if you could max, mass produce a patriotic image, you could make a lot of money. Um, so when it was time to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Lincoln's birth in 1908, he decided that he would make a portrait of Lincoln um, that he could easy to mass produce and that he could sell, um, sell and make some, it was a side hustle to his regular industrial work. Um, and he, and what I love is that he, he painted Lincoln as if he were a Catholic saint on a gold ground surface um, inscribed with the words of the Gettysburg Address. It looks like a, a portrait of a saint from the 16th century, except the saint looks like Abraham Lincoln. And um, he painted many, many versions of this picture. Um, a few survive. He painted it right through, um, long after the, um, the celebrations were over. And it's one of my favorite works by him. And um, and when asked about Lincoln as a role model, he didn't describe, he, he's, he said a little bit about him as, as, as a person who saved the, the Union and, and um, wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. But he really also thought of him as a character who was inspirational to artists, which was a very uniquely John Cain view of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> um, but I think the reason that um, his interest in the president carried over long past, the commercial moment passed. He also, John Cain also um, liked to compare himself to Lincoln, uh, the humble background that he came from, that Abraham Lincoln came from, the, uh, char the strong character that enabled each of them to advance in life and do meaningful work. So he, he made that comparison um, in his own mind and in Skyhooks, the, mm -hmm. the book. How do art historians today uh, think about his work? Hmm. Um, he's, he's becoming a, a new and interesting problem in that art historians today are in the middle of agonizing over the question of what constitutes 20th century modern art and how do you um, consider 
the relationship of artists like John Cain, Grandma Moses, Doris Lee, other self-taught artists. How do you consider them in relationship to, say, Picasso and Cubism? Um, and 1920s, 1930s, these artists were integrated into modernism. These were part of what modern art was all about. Um, at the moment, there is a trend towards kicking them out of the sort of Museum of Modern Art definition of modern artists and creating this new category of, of self-taught artists who are outside the mainstream, who need to be judged on different terms and, um, and, to, and to exist in their own art historical category. And so there's a lot of discussion right now on is this appropriate? And if it is, how do we define this group of painters and how do we um, consider their place in the history of art? Um, as a result of this, there are going to be a couple of exhibitions here in Pittsburgh in the fall um, that will be addressing this question at the Westmoreland and at the Frick, as well as at the History Center where we'll be doing a John Cain exhibition at the same, all at the same time. So it's going to be a, a great opportunity for um, Pittsburgh to be the center of this conversation for a couple of months. This is the year of John Cain. <laughs> Now, there was a point at which, uh, after he became famous, he, he was uh, accused of fraud. Uh, what happened? Uh, uh, another artist in, in Pittsburgh, Mylon Petrovitz, who Lulu and I think was jealous of John Cain's sudden success, uh, got a hold of a picture that uh, he alleged was, was uh, painted over a photograph. And that he and uh, Petrovitz alleged that uh, Kane was a fraud because all of his paintings were just painted over photographs. Well, the truth is that years before, Kane had made some money by getting photographs from families of family members and then painting over them. And so there are a number of cases where Kane, as by the way was the case with a, a number of other artists, I mean, think about Andy Warhol for a minute. Kane was using photographs as the basis of his work. But all the ones that were accepted at the Carnegie were original works of art. They weren't based on photographs. No, they weren't. Well, the, <laughs> most of them were. And, uh, and he was not using photographs. He was using photographs as a tool, as a research tool, not as a substitute for, for an original composition. And, you know, all the, interestingly, uh, experts from the art world, and from the museum world really came to, and, and artists themselves, came to John Cain's defense over this. Yeah. It's actually um, a really interesting story. Again, um, going back to your question of how he became an artist through his own um, unique processes, um, he did start painting over photographs in the early 20th century when he was um, doing commission portraits for laborers and their families. Um, they would give him a photograph, he'd have it enlarged, he would paint it over. Um, and this was his way of dealing with the fact that he was really couldn't draw figures and was a terrible figure painter, um, something that he never overcame um, in the course of his career. Um, and he continued to rely on photographs for figure paintings throughout the rest of his, his life. Um, the scandal involved um, a picture, Dad's Payday, that he'd 
was indeed a painted over photograph. And Petrovitz um, actually bought the picture out of an exhibition, um, went to a local newspaper, pulled out a jar of turpentine and cleaned off half the surface to reveal the underlying photograph, which then made the front page of the papers and created the scandal that, that you asked about. Uh, that picture still survives, and I've seen it, and we're going to be putting it on view at the History Center in November. And um, it's a wonderful opportunity to get a real comparison between what the underlying photo looked like and what, how John Keane transformed it by painting over it. Um, so his, he, photography was always a tool. Um, once he, he had some money um, in the late 1920s, he actually bought himself a camera and would take it with him as he moved around Pittsburgh looking for subjects to paint. And at that point, the, um, the content, he made little tiny contact prints which served as stand-ins for drawings. Um, and he never photographed the whole scene, and he never painted the whole scene from a photograph. But he would, he would put them together, rather like those blocks of stone in, in his street paving designs, um, to make a landscape. And so photography um, became a tool rather than a crutch. We've been talking about the book American Workman, The Life and Art of John Kane by Maxwell King and Louise Lippicott. Thank you both for speaking with me. Thank you so Thank much. You. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.